I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We're going to look today at the entirety of this last chapter in Luke in a message entitled, Jesus is Risen. What happens when a CSI-style forensic detective goes to Calvary to investigate what transpired after Jesus' crucifixion? A man by the name of J. Warner Wallace is a forensic detective specializing in cold case investigations. He wrote the book, Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. As an atheist, Wallace became intrigued with the Gospels and their account of the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, the most important question I could ask about Christianity just so happened to fall within my area of expertise. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? It would prove to be the ultimate cold case forensic investigation because eyewitnesses and material evidence that could be used to prove or disprove what happened have been gone for nearly 2,000 years. Wallace came away utterly convinced that it was in fact true. As an atheist, he had always assumed that the resurrection was a lie. He thought that the 12 apostles concocted, executed, and maintained what he called the most elaborate and influential conspiracy of all time. But when he looked at the evidence, and as an unbeliever, he found four facts to be substantiated by both friends and foes of Christianity. First of all, he said, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. There was agreement uh, in both friends and foes of Christianity. Number two, Jesus' tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. Number three, Jesus' disciples believed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then number four, Jesus' disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observations. And Wallace concluded with this, the resurrection is reasonable, the answers are available, you don't have to turn your brain off to be a believer. Wallace joined a long line of intellectual skeptics who started out to disprove the resurrection and ended up believing that it is true. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is central to the Christian faith. It is the focus of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, the concluding chapter. Luke has been our guide and our friend on Sunday mornings for more than two years now. We come today to the conclusion of the series, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save the Lost. It also marks the fact that I've had the opportunity to preach through the entirety of the New Testament at Cross Lanes Baptist Church in almost the past 19 years, along with very large swaths of the Old Testament. You say, well, what are you going to preach now? I'm going to do it again. And what I would say to you is that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a student of the Bible, you want to be in a place where the Word is central, then you need to anchor yourself down at Cross Lanes Baptist Church And you need to study the Word with us because the Word is the authoritative Word from God. 
And it's how we know about who God is, how we can know him, how we can live for him, and what we should anticipate in the future. We have no other subject except the word of God. And we thank God for it and for his blessings upon us. Now Luke recounts three scenes after the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24. The encounter with the women, the Emmaus disciples, and then the 11 disciples. A three-paneled printing is called a triptych. And you'll find triptychs in ancient cathedrals and museums and things in places like the Middle East and Europe and other older places. And on these triptychs, what they will do is they will paint scenes that are familiar with which you can identify with that are from the scripture or from other, some other scene that they want to communicate. And all three of these scenes, if they were to be painted for us, would tell us something about what was going on. Uh, if the scenes were painted, the first would be of the women in conversation with the angels at the empty tomb. The second scene would be of the disciples on the Emmaus Road with the Lord Jesus, with their hearts burning as they listened to Jesus. The third scene would be of Jesus suddenly standing among his 11 disciples and confirming for them that he had, in fact, been raised from the dead. So what I want to do is I want us to work our way through these three scenes by reading the scripture and giving a brief recap of what took place And then by considering and focusing on three implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to read a broader swath of scripture than I normally would. But I think it will be helpful for us to hear from the word itself as we come to a close of the book of Luke. The first scene is the scene with the women. Beginning in verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, verse 12 says, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. At this point, Jesus has now been crucified, his body placed in a tomb, the tomb sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. The tomb had been initially blocked by a stone so that no one would disturb it. The tomb stayed sealed and guarded until the women came on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, and they found that it had been moved. The women, according to the scripture, included Mary Magdalene. 
Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, along with some other women. Their purpose for coming was to bring some spices to complete a proper burial of Jesus, which would have been according to their custom. They did not find the body of Jesus, which they expected to find. And the angels were there in shining garments, and they asked them a most important question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What a great question. It almost seems as though the angels were surprised that the women were surprised. And they had something to share with them. The words of Jesus that he spoke in Galilee were recalled, that he would be betrayed, crucified, and rise on the third day. The women remembered those words, so they went back to the disciples to tell them what they had found. The disciples did not believe what they had been told. So Peter goes to find out for himself. He wants to go examine what's happened for himself. And when he gets there, it's confirmed, in fact, what the women had told them. And he was amazed at what had happened. That's scene number one. Scene number two is the Emmaus disciples, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk among them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them, verse 19. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish and slow are you to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in and, uh, to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while we were uh, talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? In that very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The disciples were on the road to Emmaus. 
they're talking along the way, apparently arguing about what they were expecting or what did or didn't take place. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. He's walking with them for a while. And the scripture says that they were prevented at first from understanding, seeing who he was. So Jesus asked them what they had been talking about. And they asked Jesus, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you've not known the things which happened here in these days? Oh, he knew. But he goes along with the discussion and he says, what things? It's almost a humorous moment if you're reading it because they're talking, they're arguing, they're discussing it. Jesus is there. They see him and they don't know who he is. And then they're like, are, are, are you the only one that doesn't know what has happened? And Jesus says, what things? And then the scripture says that Jesus chastised them for not believing and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And he went on to stay with them for a bit. He reclined at the table. He took bread. He blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. And in that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized who he was and Jesus disappeared. They went back and they told the other disciples what they had experienced. And that brings us to the third scene, Jesus among the 11 disciples. I'll begin reading here in verse 36. As they were saying these things, he, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and they thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Jesus stood there among the disciples and he proclaimed peace. They were afraid at first and they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus said, uh, why are you troubled? Why are you having these doubts? And he points to his hands and to his feet and he tells them to touch him. And then he eats fish among them. And again, he confirmed what he had taught. And the scripture says that he opened their minds to the truth. Now we're going to come back to that. But Jesus told them that they would be witnesses of his death and his resurrection and that forgiveness would be proclaimed to all the nations. And then according to verse 50, it says he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. He led them out to, to the vicinity of Bethany and he was carried up into heaven. 
and they began to worship him. And then they returned to Jerusalem and were continually in the temple praising God. These are the scenes that unfold after the resurrection of Jesus. But now in these few moments that we have remaining together, having heard from the word, let's consider three implications of the resurrection and why this is significant for us and how this applies to our faith both now and eternally. The first implication is that the resurrection confirms the words of Jesus. In each of these scenes, there's a confirmation of the words that had already been spoken leading up to these moments that were now taking place or had already taken place. The angels spoke to the women about the words of Jesus. They said, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. They were saying to them, listen, you need to recall the words that you've already heard. And if you will recall the words that you've already heard, this whole deal will come into focus. It'll make sense to you. The pieces will come together. You'll be able to understand what it is that has happened. And the prophecies were clear. Remember, after Peter's confession of Christ, Jesus had said to them in Luke 9 and verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was preparing them for the things to come. And their minds were not clear at that point on it. Their understanding was foggy. They weren't seeing things with focus. But Jesus is building up to the confirmation of what he told them would take place. You might also remember that after his transfiguration, Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew chapter 17, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. There was a moment when the light came on for these women and they remembered what Jesus had said. And when that light came on, they were about to become messengers of the truth about Jesus. And you know that for each of us, there's a moment when the light comes on. We're trapped in our darkness, the darkness of sin. We're separated from God. And that light comes on and we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the glory of King Jesus. And we understand what it is that the word is teaching us. And that's what happened with these women. Jesus spoke also to the Emmaus disciples about his words. According to verse 26, he says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. One of the disciples had accused Jesus of not knowing what was going on, but they didn't understand who it was who was talking to them. This was none other than the king of kings who was momentarily incognito having a discussion with them. Now, I want to draw your attention for a moment, a little bit more in depth to this word interpreted in verse 27. The word interpreted is also translated as explained. That's important because it is the word from which we get the word hermeneutics. Now, you might not know what that is, but I'm about to tell you. Hermeneutics is defined as the study of the principles and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. So when we speak of hermeneutics, we're basically talking about 
those principles that we apply to the Word of God so that we arrive at proper understanding, so that we uh, comprehend what God is teaching us. And there's some basic principles of biblical hermeneutics that I want to encourage you to follow that will help you whether you're in your daily Bible study or you're teaching a Bible fellowship class or you have an opportunity in some other way to teach the Word of God. First of all, the Scripture should be interpreted literally. That means that you take it at face value. You're taking the plain meaning of the Scripture, and unless the passage is obviously intended to be symbolic or figurative, you take it as it is, and you interpret it literally. Now, obviously, there are many literary techniques and devices in the Bible, and uh, they're obviously teaching us from symbols and from figures and, and similes and metaphors and other things that we find there, uh, but the ground rule is interpret it literally in its plain meaning. Second of all, the scripture is to be interpreted historically, grammatically, and contextually. In other words, we're to use the history of the Bible itself and the broader history within which it is set in order to understand what's being taught. And we can't rip it out of that history. We have to understand it within that history Grammatically means that we consider every word and phrase and sentence and paragraph and chapter and the entirety of the books and the letters that are presented. And it's important because these words have intended meaning from God. And we want to understand what the words are teaching. And then we want to do so contextually within this second principle. And text without context is pretext. And what that means is that we can rip a verse out of context and make it say something that it never said. And we got to be very careful about that because the context of Scripture is important. So interpret it literally, interpret it historically, grammatically, and contextually. And then third, the Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. Now, some people would argue this is a circular argument. And that would be true if you do not hold to the authority of the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, these principles don't apply very well anyway. But if you believe the Bible and you believe that it is God's word breathed out to us, and if you believe that because it's God's word breathed out to us, it is therefore authoritative because it has come to us from God, divinely inspired, then you're going to understand that the scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. I want you to hold that in particular because this is going to apply as we go through the remainder of this message today. You can ask some basic questions as you apply these principles. What does the Scripture say? It can't say what it never said. What does the Scripture mean? It cannot mean what it never meant. How does the Scripture apply? There can be numerous applications depending on our life situation and, and uh, the direct application of it to our lives that are still faithful to the Scripture, but there may be perhaps more than one application of the Scripture as we study it. Now, all of that to say in summary, here's what I think Jesus was saying to these guys. I'm your hermeneutic. I think that's what he's saying. I think Jesus is saying to them, I'm your hermeneutic. If you want to understand the rest of the Bible, if you want to understand the law, you want to understand the prophets, you want to understand the Psalms, 
You want to understand what has just taken place? I'm your hermeneutic. Look to me because all of this is interpreted through me. What's taking place is the living word of God is explaining the written word of God. And from the outset of the ministry of Jesus, he taught that he was central to the Old Testament. In his discussion with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he said, you study the scriptures because you think that you possess eternal life. And then Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 40, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus spoke to the 11 disciples about his words also here in one of these scenes. In verse 44 and 45, he specifically references the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, I want to point out something that's critically important for our understanding of biblical hermeneutics and our application of the Bible. God has given us his word and he's given us his spirit. And when we study the Bible, we have the word, which is divinely inspired. It's all testifying to Jesus, who is the hermeneutic. And he's given us the spirit. And the spirit of God, who inspired the word of God, is dwelling within us. And he is our teacher and our guide. And he always applies the word of God accurately because he inspired it. And God wants us to understand it and to live by it. And we can trust when we have the word and the spirit that we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus referred to the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and those were specifically the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. I love the way Leon Morris put it. He said, the solemn division of scripture into the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms indicates that there is no part of scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus. Or we might think about it this way. There's a thread about Jesus, the Messiah, that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It is on display even in creation itself. Genesis 1 and John 1. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ was the active agent in creation. We begin to have some insight in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, would fulfill Genesis 3. And it runs all the way to the end of the Bible in the eternal reign of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I say to you today that the truth about the resurrection is inseparable from the prophetic words of Jesus. The prophetic words about Jesus throughout the entire Bible are central to the gospel. The cross is only understood in light of the entire word of God. The resurrection is only understood in light of the entire word of God. The resurrection confirms the words of Jesus. Now there's a second implication, and that is the resurrection conveys peace to disciples of Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus says among them, peace to you. Now, the Old Testament prophets longed for peace. What kind of peace was it that they were longing for? 
They were longing for a peace that would bring a holistic sense of fulfillment and well-being and human flourishing. It was the kind of comprehensive shalom peace that they envisioned for the future and that they envisioned for eternity. I love the way Alvin Plantinga put it in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He said they dreamed of an age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places would be made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise would be made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with the lions. All of nature would be fruitful and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God and walk with God and lean toward God and delight in God. And shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and the seas, from women in the streets and men on ships. And he says this webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. Understand that it's the redemptive mission of Jesus that brings all this together now and eternally. Jesus was prophesied to bring peace to the earth because he is the prince of peace. That's what we read in Isaiah chapter 9 as we open the service today. Jesus brought peace to the earth through his birth. Luke 2 says that the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Jesus brought peace to the earth through his finished work on the cross. The Bible says that we were once at enmity with God. That means that we were separated from God. We were enemies with God. We were opposed to God. But it's Jesus Christ who brings us near. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that the only way that we can be reconciled to God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. It's only through his sacrifice that our sins can be forgiven. And through that reconciliation, Jesus brings peace on the earth in our lives through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You say, well, pastor, I don't have that kind of peace today. I'm going to tell you there's one of two reasons why you don't have that peace today. Either number one, you've never been reconciled to God. You've never believed in the gospel and been saved, had your sins forgiven, had the Spirit of God come to take up residence in your life and know that you're on your way to be in heaven with God when your life on this earth is over. And maybe God brought you here today for that specific reason. You'd say, I don't have that peace because I don't know the Prince of Peace. The Bible says, if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe today somebody here needs to be saved, and that's why you're lacking peace. But did you know that you can be saved and still not, lack, and still not have the peace that you need? You say, well, how could that be true? Because you're living in your own strength. Or maybe you've drifted in your relationship with God. Your spiritual life has grown cold. 
You're not spending time in the word. You're not surrendered to the spirit. And you know that it's, things are just not right. You're just not where you need to be with God. One of the truest statements I've ever heard is that most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. And that is true if you've drifted away from God. But I got good news for you. God's not moved a bit. He's still where he was when you drifted. And he's inviting you to come closer. He's inviting you to live a life of holiness. He's inviting you to live the kind of life that he wants you to live. And you'll find that peace that you need. Now, I do want to give you a warning here. In the short term, faith in and allegiance to Jesus might actually bring division and conflict in your life because there are people who don't know Jesus, who don't care about the gospel, who are still in the darkness, and they don't want anything to do with what it is that you believe or what it is that you say brings you peace. And it might even bring persecution in your life. That's true around the world today, that people who are living for Christ are experiencing division and conflict, and it might even be costing some of them their lives. So in the short term, you might find division and conflict. But the process of peacemaking on earth and with heaven that began with the birth of Jesus and which will be fully realized with the return of Jesus has already been accomplished and guaranteed. So there's nothing else that needs to be done to ensure this peace. Or to say it another way, this peace was accomplished and guaranteed through the cross and by the power of the resurrection. There's nothing else that is needed. The work is finished. Redemption has been accomplished. Jesus is high and lifted up and we look to him. And we know that we're going to see the full realization of it in the future. But in the meantime, we live in the reality of the present that it is, in fact, complete in him. And friend, I want you to know today there is peace to be found as a disciple of Jesus. And then there's a third implication, and that is the resurrection communicates hope to the world for all who believe in Jesus. We find this recounting here in verse 46 and 47 that the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then Jesus says directly in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. When he says this is what is written, what's he doing? He's coming back again to this idea of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He, he's built this framework in these scenes that have unfolded, and he's coming back to it once again. The gospel is understood through the context of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. You say, well, how is that so? Well, in the law, we find the foreshadowing of the gospel and the Passover and the sacrifices and in the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 12, we learn of the Passover lamb, and then we find in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover lamb. In Exodus 24, we learn of the Old Covenant, which focused on the blood of the sacrifices. And all the blood of the sacrifices pointed forward and was fulfilled in the shed blood of Jesus. 
Then in the prophets, we find the foreshadowing of the gospel with the most explicit being in Isaiah 53, the very text that Jesus pointed his, his disciples to in the upper room. He referred to the final verse indicating that he was to be numbered with the transgressors. And every line of Isaiah 53 points to Jesus as the ultimate suffering servant. Hosea 6 and verse 2, he points to the resurrection of the Messiah. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And then in the Psalms, we find the foreshadowing of the gospel. In Psalm 22, we're given a description of one dying a death, presumably of crucifixion on a cross, even before that was a means of execution. And the Psalms teach us about that resurrection. Peter referred to Psalm 16 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he said, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You cannot open a page of this Bible and not find in it something about the glory of God and his redemptive plan among the nations. R. Kent Hughes wrote, as the law was opened, their hearts burned. As the prophets came alive, the flames rose higher. And with the Psalms, their hearts became passionate, roaring furnaces. And he says they became men of the gospel. Church, are we people of the gospel? Would that be how they describe us? If someone were to talk about us individually, and if people were to talk about us collectively as a church, would they say those are people of the gospel? Those are Jesus people. Would that be the first thing that came to their minds about us? Are we shining the light into the darkness? Are we salt among the rottenness of the world? Is our character being conformed to the image of Jesus so that people look at us and say, there's something different about them. That's somebody that's different. That's a Jesus person. These are people of the gospel. In all three of these scenes that we have covered in Luke 24, conclude with one thing. And that is, they conclude with a witness. Don't miss this. The women hurried from the empty tomb to witness and to bring the news to the eleven. The disciples on the Emmaus Road went back to Jerusalem as a witness of what they had experienced. And then Jesus made it formal. He says, you're my witnesses of these things. Now he was looking at the 11 disciples that were gathered there in the room. And he's saying, boys, you're the witness. You've seen it. Now what you've seen, you've got to go tell. But he's saying to us in the church, you're my witnesses. What you have experienced from the word of God and through faith in the son of God, you're to bear witness to it. You're the messengers And that's what we must be focused on in the church. We cannot get sidetracked by things that are secondary. We cannot get sidetracked by our own preferences. We cannot get sidetracked by things that are distractions. We have one thing to be focused on, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're talking about the crucified, risen, and soon to return Lord. 
We're talking about the Savior who will rule and reign for all of eternity. The work is already done. We're just awaiting the realization of it all and seeing the rest of it unfold. And we're his witnesses. And the gospel is advanced when messengers are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the gospel comes not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That, that's what we need. These are not just words in our heads. These are truths that are deep in our hearts. These are truths that burn within us, and we are to go in power. And what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings people to conviction. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings people to repentance. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings people to eternal life. And then all the glory goes to Jesus through that. That's what we need in the church. And we ought to be a gospel people who are faithful to the witness. The resurrection communicates hope to the world for all who believe in Jesus. And I'm going to give you this and I'm going to close. We should worship as they did with great joy and live in a way that brings praise to God. I mentioned earlier that today we begin the week of prayer for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. The collective goal among churches like ours nationally is $185 million. The resources are just a tool. But what do they represent? They represent advancing God's kingdom together. That's what they represent. And friends, that's what I'm praying for as a church, that we, the people of God in this place, gather together as Cross Lanes Baptist Church, as the family of God in this hour, in this generation, that we would be all about advancing God's kingdom together because that's why we're here. That's our purpose. And may God help us to be faithful. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. And God, as these truths are clear before us because you have opened our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, first of all, if there be any under the sound of my voice today who have not yet believed in Jesus, turning from their sins and turning to the Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would find the peace that only you can bring. I pray for my brothers and sisters whose spiritual relationship with you might have grown lukewarm or somewhat cold. Maybe there's some reason that they've drifted away. They're, they're not in the word. They're not living by the power of the spirit. I pray that we would all lean in and draw near because your word promises that if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So we thank you, Father. I pray as we live our lives that we would be a gospel people proclaiming the resurrection and the truth about Jesus. So easy, Father, for us to be weighted down, distracted, out of focus. And our prayer would be, Lord, help us. Help us to be all about advancing your kingdom for your glory and for the sake of the lost. Beginning right here in Cross Lanes, 
and extending all the way to the ends of the earth. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.